This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Komsik in for Libby Snymer this week. We all think we know who the real Pierre Trudeau was, but a book written by a Trent University professor purports to tell the real story of Trudeau-mania. We'll speak with Robert Wright in just a few moments. And October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll talk with the Canadian Cancer Society about the latest facts and figures and things you can do to limit the damage from breast cancer. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. You'll remember Allison Azar's story when it was featured here on the Zoomer Week in Review. My kids have been taken from war zone into an area of violence with a man who's on the run, he's on the move, he's unstable and he's violent. Allison's been fighting to bring her four children back to this country after they were abducted some 14 months ago by her ex-husband to first Iraq and now Iran. And now she says she feels disrespected. After Foreign Affairs Minister Stéphane Dion made a dismissive thumbs-down gesture when her ordeal came up in the Commons recently, the following day Dion apologized in the Commons, saying he's sorry that some interpreted it to be aimed at Azar and accuses the opposition of politicizing the situation. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister says his government's been working extremely hard on the troubling case and claims those efforts have been hampered by the previous Harper government's decision to cut ties with Iran. Looks as though despite advances in technology and aging, a human cannot live past the age of 125. New research from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx has looked at worldwide numbers documenting ages of death for humans over a 50-year span. The researchers say despite longer life expectancies, survival rates still decline once you hit 100, and the age of the world's oldest person has not increased since the 1990s. A French woman holds the record of 122 after passing in 1997. It's been a New York staple since 1937, but on December 31st of this year, the Carnegie Deli will close its doors for good. Marion Harper Levine broke the news to some 60 employees in late September. In recent years, Harper Levine has dealt with a bitter divorce, been forced to pay former workers about $2.5 million, and was closed for nine months due to an illegal gas hookup. She hopes to continue the Carnegie Deli brand by selling products for wholesale distribution. Monty Python's Terry Jones, who's now battling dementia, has received a standing ovation after receiving an award from the British Academy of Film and Television Arts for his outstanding contribution to TV and film. Jones motioning to the crowd in Wales to quieten down before his son told the crowd it was a great honour. Bill Jones accepted the award on his father's behalf because dementia has now robbed him of his ability to speak. 
And it's another really big honor for country star Dolly Parton. Parton will receive the Willie Nelson Lifetime Achievement Award at the upcoming 50th Country Music Association Awards. It's happening in Nashville early next month. Willie Nelson was the first recipient of the award, presented in 2012, honoring an artist who has received a national and international fame through performances, philanthropy, humanitarian efforts, and record sales. Previous recipients also include Kenny Rogers and Johnny Cash. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The cavalier attitude, the rose in the lapel, calling MPs, fuddy-duddies, those are just some of the trademarks of Pierre Elliott Trudeau that helped define the man. But was he the man we thought he was? Robert Wright, the author of a new book entitled Trudeau-mania, joins me now. Robert, what was your reasoning behind writing this book? Well, it seems to me the time is right to have a sober second look at an event in Canadian political history that we're almost on the cusp of losing to uh, Canadians' lived memories. To take another look at Trudeau mania in 1968. Maybe uh, dispel some myths about, uh, about Pet. Yeah, that's right. And if there's a corrective in the book, it's, it's precisely that, to take another look at the, at the mythology of the period, which is that we were so enamored of him and so uh, invested in a, a kind of nationalist euphoria in Canada that we coronated Trudeau in 1968 without having a real election on issues. And the case I make in the book is that the election was very much about one core issue, and that was national unity. Why did you feel this story had to be told? I mean, you could have, I guess, written this a few years ago. You maybe could have waited, but, but why now? To be honest, I think with Justin Trudeau making his ascent in Canadian politics and taking a lot longer to do so than his father ever did, his father's ascent was meteoric. Justin took his time and spent a lot of time languishing on the back benches of the uh, third party. So I think in part it had to do with reacquainting myself and certainly reacquainting some of my students and, and just generally feeling like we needed to go back to the first incarnation of Trudeau mania. You mentioned Justin. How different, similar are they? Oh, that's a good question. I think Justin's a lot warmer than Pierre ever was. Uh, I think Pierre was uh, far more the intellectual. He was a lot more self-contained. He was a lot more interested in his own company and the company of books. I think Justin's uh, love of social contact and uh, that idea that he's always in traffic, he's always meeting Canadians and other people, and he really flourishes in, in those kinds of uh, crowd environments. Uh, I think that's all the real McCoy. I, I think it wasn't really the real McCoy for Pierre Trudeau. I think Pierre Trudeau could abide a crowd if it was politically expedient to do so, but uh, I think he much preferred his own, uh, his own company, and when he had the opportunity, he fled the crowds pretty quickly. Now, you mentioned how you feel that Justin is warmer than his late father. Then what was it that uh, led to that meteoric rise uh, in the 60s with his father? Well, uh, the case I make in the book is a relatively simple one, although it's from the point of view of winning an election for, for a politician, it was a lot more complicated than I'm going to make it sound. But basically, I think what we were up against in Canada in, uh, in the period 1965 to 1968 was the drift of nationalist thinking in Quebec in the, in the direction of separatism. 
So when Pierre Trudeau went to Ottawa in 1965 with uh, some confrères as one of the three wise men with uh, uh, Jean Marchand and uh, Gérard Pelletier, they would have preferred to stay in Montreal and finish out their high-flying professional lives. But they said, no, we really must go to Ottawa to save Canada. And, uh, and I think the real impetus for that was the drift in nationalist thinking toward a radical reconfiguration of federalism. And trying to reflect back on those days for those who really weren't into politics and, you know, with TV being in its relative infancy, it seemed like there was just something and people had trouble putting a finger on it. There was just something different about uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau that seemed to attract a lot of Canadians and obviously a a lot of uh, young women in particular, (laughs) in particular. That's right. A lot of young women. Well, I think everybody knows that Pierre Trudeau uh, was as enamored of women as they were of him. Um, it's, a, it's a real curiosity. One of, the, one of the paradoxes of that period is that one of Trudeau's competitors then and later for the leadership of the Liberal Party was John Turner. You know, you look at photographs of John Turner circa 1968, and he is far more telegenic than Trudeau ever was. Very, very handsome, blue-eyed, bilingual Rhodes Scholar. And oddly enough, television didn't do much for Turner. You know, it's commonly said that uh, television made Trudeau the candidate that he was, but it wasn't for any obvious reasons. There was a kind of alchemy there. My own feeling about Trudeau's charisma is that it was first uh, an intellectual appeal. I think his uh, self-confidence and his um, uh, that sense we have of Pierre Trudeau as very self-contained and self-assured and, uh, and of his ideas as the product of, of many years and decades even of, of solitary scholarly study, I think that was extremely appealing to people. And those words, just watch me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that, that Just Watch Me was, you know, it's one of the famous Trudeauisms from 1970. But in the book, in my book, which covers 1965 to 1968, there's dozens of those. He's just eminently quotable. He just had a, a real gift for one-liners even then. And, uh, and in those days, Canadians were, um, as they are now, as citizens of an advanced democracy, they were, they were willing and able and uh, happy to, to have the investment in complicated political issues. So, when a guy like Trudeau came, uh, came out of the wings with some pretty complicated ideas, uh, formula for federalism, for example, to thwart Quebec separatism, I think Canadians were right with him. And I think that's what they found, were charmed by initially. Robert Wright, author of Trudeau Mania, The Rise to Power of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Uh, a, a thanks to those Canadians who lived through those times and uh, some insight for those uh, who came after. Thanks, Bob. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Komsik in for Libby Zneimer. Coming up after the break, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we'll sit down with a representative from the Canadian Cancer Society when we return. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. We see signs of it everywhere, from Canadian companies to the National Football League. People wear pink to remind us that October's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But besides tying a pink ribbon around the antenna on your car, what can you do to help create awareness? And more importantly, what can you do to help prevent the disease from affecting you or a loved one? Susan Flynn from the Canadian Cancer Society joins me now. This is a a big month Let's really just 
get right to it in terms of what is the message, who are you talking to here? October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, And this month we're reaching out to women, particularly women over the age of 50, to talk about the importance of screening for breast cancer. So breast cancer is the most common cancer and the second leading cause of death among women in Canada. More than 80% of breast cancers occur in women over 50 years, and it's important for these women to be getting screened every two years for breast cancer. We want to find cancer early. How many women, what's the percentage as far as how many women actually get screened regularly, keep on top of it? Only about 61% of uh, Ontario women are getting screened for breast cancer. And these are women who are at an average risk. So that means that they have no family history or that they have no symptoms. Why wouldn't the other 39%? It seems pretty obvious that you think if this is something that can hit a woman, she would want to be on top of it. Is there some myths maybe there that uh, have women not wanting to go down that road? Are they afraid to go down that road? That's a really good point. There are. There are still women and some physicians out there who are perpetuating some myths about breast cancer. Uh, One of those might include that unless you feel something, there's no need to get tested. So unless you feel a lump, you're not at risk for breast cancer. We want to let people know that it's important to get screened early. Very many women get cancer without any symptoms whatsoever. The second one out there is that you need to have family history of cancer. If I don't have family history, my chances of getting it are pretty slim. I don't want to deal with getting a mammogram. And that's not true. Most women diagnosed over the age of 50 have no family history of breast cancer. Could it also be it depends who's in your circle of of friends and your family in terms of what they know, and they can sometimes perpetuate some of these myths as well? Yes, I think that's definitely the case. And, you know, we have a program, Woman to Woman, across uh, Ontario, where we encourage women to be basically screening ambassadors among their friends. We send them little educational tools, and we have a website that women can go and order these tools and really promote breast cancer uh, screening with their friends and, you know, learn a little bit about those myths and how to combat those barriers that women experience to not getting screened. One of the the big myths, Susan, has to be in terms of risks, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think that, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of women think that your risk is higher. And of course it is if you have um, a family history of breast cancer. However, uh, women with no family history can are also at risk. The most important risk to remember is aging. So as I said earlier, 80% of women over the age of 50 are diagnosed you know, 80% of those cases are diagnosed over the age of 50. Also, um, hormones, so especially estrogen, are linked with breast cancer. Other factors could include um, having dense breasts and also alcohol intake and being obese. So, you know, we recommend that women reduce their risk by getting screened regularly, most importantly, limiting alcohol and maintaining a healthy body weight. We no longer recommend breast self-exam, as the best way to determine if you have cancer or not before seeking treatment or testing. However, we do recommend that women of all ages really get become familiar with their breasts so that they notice any changes. So that might be change in shape or size, change in skin color, change to the nipple, or of course a lump that's persistent over quite a few months. No matter what age you are, it's important to look out for those symptoms and see your doctor immediately if you have them. 
Any other point you want to maybe emphasize, underline in wrapping up? I think I just want to emphasize my point by letting women know that in 2015, a woman had a one in nine chance of developing breast cancer in her life and a one in 30 chance of dying from breast cancer. So we would encourage women to uh, talk to the doctor about getting screened. You can also call us at our 1-888 number. Uh, that's 1-888-939-3333 to find out about where you can get screened in your local community, actually across Canada, or by visiting cancer.ca backslash fight breast cancer. Susan Flynn, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby's Nimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. In a moment, we'll talk about one of the founding members of the Beatles who would have turned 76 this week. We turn our attention to John Lennon when Zoomer Week in Review returns. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Komsik, and it's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. At the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, it's Bill Graham and the Rock and Roll Revolution. It's the first comprehensive look at the life and times of the late rock impresario, who played a pivotal role in the careers of iconic artists such as Jefferson Airplane, Fleetwood Mac, and Janis Joplin. The exhibition continues until January. In Sweden, a show called The Artist features works by Rubens, Renoir, Rembrandt, and Picasso in an exhibition put on by the Royal Swedish Academy. The 19th Beijing Music Festival has 30 shows that cover a wide range of music genres, from opera to symphony to ethnic music. The festival runs through October 29th. And in Berlin, three iconic paintings by German expressionist artist Ernst Ludwig Kirchner are part of an exhibition at the Hamburger Bahnhof Museum. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. On October 9th, John Lennon would have celebrated his 76th birthday. Sadly, we lost him 36 years ago when he was shot in New York City, December 8, 1980. John Lennon's final live performance was November 28, 1974, when he made a special guest appearance at an Elton John concert. His appearance was the result of a bet between the two icons. They had recently released their duet, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, and Lennon didn't think it would be a hit. Elton John said that it would go to number one. And if it did, Lennon would have to join him on stage at Madison Square Garden. Sure enough, the song topped the charts and John Lennon kept his word. They performed two songs. The first was that new duet, and the second was the final song John Lennon would ever perform live in concert, the classic early Beatles hit, I Saw Her Standing There. That was John Lennon and Elton John with a live version of I Saw Her Standing There. John Lennon would have turned 76 this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Komsik in for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week and stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. 
produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Dave Woodard and Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.